This is a story about a rebellious girl who left home when she was a young teenager, supported herself as a waitress and a factory worker and a cab driver, and barely managed to finish high school, but eventually became a scientist and ended up winning a Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2018. Her name is Dr. Frances Arnold, and what she discovered was a way to harness the power of evolution in a test tube to make environmentally friendly fuels and pharmaceuticals and pesticides. You know, our whole chemicals industry, our whole lifestyle is predicated on the need to take abundant starting materials and turn them into our clothing and our packaging and our housing. Basically, everything that supports our life is done through chemistry. And we do a terrible job at it. Human beings do chemistry very inefficiently, and we've managed to pollute the planet at the same time that we provide these products for us. And I said, surely we can do better than that and just look at the biological world for examples of how you can take abundant renewable starting materials, not oil, sunlight and carbon dioxide, cheap things from the planet and turn those into the products we need in our daily lives. And the way nature does that is with these protein catalysts called enzymes. They convert one form of matter into another and into all of life. And these are the most beautiful, intricate, efficient, selective, non-polluting machines that you can imagine. Why not learn from the best? We have four billion years of work that went into the chemistry of the biological world. So just, just looking at it from the chemistry point of view, no human being can master that chemistry. No human being can mimic that chemistry. Only biology can do that. But biology, Dr. Arnold discovered, is open to taking a little direction. We've got the remarkable story of Dr. Frances Arnold's life and her life's work on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Human beings figured out a long time ago how to breed animals for certain characteristics. Horses that run faster, cows that give more milk. You could say we evolved them to get more of what we wanted from them. But no one had figured out how to evolve enzymes to suit our needs until Dr. Frances Arnold. She had a vision about 30 years ago that she could take a page from nature's own playbook to breed better enzymes, enzymes that could transform industry 
and lead to a cleaner planet. She would become, in other words, an engineer of the biological world. Sitting in the library at the California Institute of Technology, or Caltech, where she is a professor, here is how she described it to Gail Eichenthal, who interviewed her for the Academy of Achievement just a few weeks after she got the call from the Nobel Committee. So it's easy to say, I want to be an engineer of the biological world, but no one had any clue how to do it. These are complicated things that we know very little about. How does DNA encode even a single protein molecule? These are answers that we don't have yet, and we won't in my scientific lifetime. But there's a process by which all of that was invented. And that process is called evolution. No human being designed any of this. It came out through a simple algorithm of mutation and natural selection. So I didn't know how to design new DNA, but I was aware of this engineering process. And I said, OK, if I don't know how to design, why not breed molecules? Why not breed them like you breed cats and dogs? We don't know how this DNA encodes a hairless cat, but you don't have to know. You can breed it by choosing the parents and deciding who goes with whom and which progeny from the next generation go on to, to reproduce. You can do the same thing with molecules in the test tube. So I rejected the way that the engineering world was approaching this problem. Biochemists would say, we have to get the structure, you have to understand everything, then you can engineer it. I said, no, I'll be, I'll be old and dead before that happens. Why not use the process that nature uses and breed these new molecules in the test tube, make mutations in the DNA, recombine DNA from 33 different sources. You, know, you don't have to have two parents in the test tube. And then let the system search through those new products and see which ones are starting to acquire the traits that, that I'm interested in. And that way we would completely circumvent this complete ignorance of how DNA encodes function. We would just evolve it. And of course, people thought that was a nutty idea. And it wasn't scientific. So you got a lot of pushback. Uh, I was crazy in those days. I had three little kids, a husband who was also eager to do his science. And um, I had no patience for pushback. <laughs> I had no patience for people who wanted to you know, give me advice or tell me it wasn't going to work. Uh, first of all, I knew it would work. And second, I was never good at taking advice anyway. So people would tell me that, oh, gentlemen don't do random mutagenesis. You make mutations at random and because you're supposed to sit with your big brain and figure things out, or that's not science. Well, she figured she wasn't a gentleman and she was an engineer more than a scientist, so they must not be talking to her. <laughs> so I just was able to ignore the naysayers. Not to say it didn't hurt my feelings. I listened to the criticism. I took the pieces that were useful to me, and I completely just ignored the rest. I just said, you don't know. You don't understand. Because I'd seen lots of people who thought they knew everything, and they lied to us. 
So I was able to, I guess just by the force of my very stubborn character, just say, no, I know this is going to work. Now, this is where I'm going to pivot and take you back to Frances Arnold's beginnings, growing up in Pittsburgh in the 1960s, long before she gave any thought to becoming a chemical engineer. Because all the things she's talking about here, being stubborn, making her own way, bucking the establishment, and speaking truth to power, those are all qualities she had as a young teenager. And they primed her to make these outsized contributions that won her a Nobel Prize. It was the 60s, after all, and young Frances Arnold was soaking it all in, the civil unrest, the political upheaval, and the need to question everything. Gail Eichenthal asked her to take us back there. I've been thinking about this quite a bit, uh, what made me just reject everything that was around me, and that's just the way it was. Remember. Don't trust anybody over 25. It was a big time. We were protesting the Vietnam War. There were civil rights protests all over. These inner cities, I lived in the inner city in Pittsburgh and in Baltimore, they were burning. Uh, I was bused to the high school with kids from neighborhoods I'd never even set foot in and I didn't realize what they went through. So there was just huge changes that, that were going on. And the city where she lived, Pittsburgh, which had a thriving steel industry, by the early 70s had little left to show for it but decay and pollution and unemployment. So there was a lot to fight against that someone, a young person like I was, was looking around trying to find her, her place. What about your parents? Uh, what sort of influence did they have on you professionally? Well, they probably felt they didn't have enough influence because I was doing my best to pretend to ignore what they wanted me to do. Uh, my father was a nuclear physicist. He worked for Westinghouse. and He invented some of the first commercial pressurized nuclear reactors that went into the nascent nuclear industry that came out of out of the nuclear navy. And this was a, a, an exciting time in the 50s because we were talking about energy too cheap to meter. And then of course, reality stepped in and we had nuclear accidents like Three Mile Island in the 70s. And we realized we were playing with fire here. So my father was, uh, he loved science. He loved mathematics. I'm sure he would have really wanted to be a professor if he didn't have five children. But he, he encouraged all of us uh, to look at science as a career. My mother wanted me to do what she liked to do, which was volunteer work. She was a member of the Junior League. She um, loved curls and dresses and all the things that I couldn't stand. Uh, so we were always at loggerheads over what how I would look and what I would wear and what I would do with my time. So you ended up leaving home at a very early age. I did. Uh, as I mentioned, these, these things that were going on in society made me or helped me question the values of the previous generation. Um, we, we felt we were being lied to, and we were. Uh, not. Everything, but there was enough 
discrepancy between what we saw in the newspapers or what we saw in society and what we felt was really happening. And Vietnam was such a big part of that. And I should mention, my grandfather was a three-star general in the Army. He was in World War II, and he retired in the 1950s after leading the Fifth Army in Europe. Uh, and there, was a, there were many members of my family who were career Army officers. So there was this strict discipline and this idea that you didn't question authority which, of course, made me question authority even more. We were also a fairly strict Catholic family, and that was very hard for me to swallow. <laughs> so I, I spent a lot of time early on, uh, and, and I don't know why, but I just felt I had to battle everything. Uh, I spent a lot of energy. And at some point, my parents just said, you know, we can't do this. We can't have you going out at night, doing what you want to do, hitchhiking to Washington to protest the war. You're a bad influence on your brothers. So I said, OK, I'll move out at 15. And uh, I was very self-sufficient. I could easily go get a job. They didn't pay very much, but I could work in a pizza parlor. Or, or I had many jobs over the years, from pizza parlor to cocktail waitress, taxi driver. I worked in the famous jazz club of Pittsburgh, Walt Harper's Attic. And they um, never asked for ID or age or anything like that. So when I was 17, I would lie about my age and say I was 22. It, they didn't care as long as I could carry a drink and add two and two. They were happy to have me. So I, I found it easy to support myself at a very low level in these gritty, cheap apartments that you would find. And you were still in high school. I was in high school uh, sometimes. I, uh, I have, my parents gave me a stack of truancy letters a few years back that they had collected over the years where I was expelled from school. They still do this today. I was expelled from school because I didn't show up for class. And they would say, please, keep Francis away from school for the next three days. And I had many of those. So I say by the time I, and I did graduate from high school, some miracle happened. I think my parents marched in and <laughs> said, you will graduate her. But uh, by some miracle, I graduated without really spending a lot of time in school. That might not seem quite as miraculous as what happened next, which is that Frances Arnold, with her sketchy academic record, got into Princeton. Well, I, I was always good at teaching myself things. If I wasn't going to let the world teach me, I was going to learn through my own experiences. Believe me, this was painful, because many of those experiences were not such great experiences. I was hungry. I was lonely. I probably was in danger a lot of the time. Uh, the city streets were not safe. But I had to do it through my own experience. And that power, so when you're 15, you don't have any power, right? That, I remember so clearly saying, I'm so frustrated because I want to do all these things, but I have no mechanism to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to travel around the world. I don't know how to run my life or learn these things. But what my power is, is collecting knowledge. 
And somehow I knew early on that knowledge was like money in the bank, that if you could collect experiences, that if you could learn, teach yourself calculus, that if you could read a history book, all of which I love to do, if you could teach yourself music, then somehow I had the conviction that that would add up. So I got to go to college. I got into Princeton, and not on my grades, but probably for some of the other crazy things that I did in arts and music, and probably didn't hurt that my father was a Princeton grad with his PhD in physics and knew some of the engineering faculty there. And it also probably didn't hurt that I was the only woman to apply in mechanical engineering in the 70s. Actually, I think there were two or three before me, but it was just so unheard of. It was her dad who suggested that mechanical engineering might give her an edge, and he was right. The only thing is, she had no intention of being a mechanical engineer. So she met the requirements of her major, but she spent a lot of her time at Princeton learning Italian and Russian and economics and literature. During the summers and after she graduated, she traveled and worked in Spain and Italy and Brazil, trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. Turns out, those early impulses she had to try and better the world were still brewing inside her. This was now the end of the 70s, and we had so much disruption, particularly in energy. So you remember the oil crises and cars going all around the block waiting to get gassed. We had these huge disruptions, and you could tell that our way of life and the future was in danger if we didn't learn how to live sustainably. So I took it on myself to help implement President Carter's plan of 20% renewable energy by the year 2000. And I went to the Solar Energy Research Institute in Golden, Colorado, which was a brand new national laboratory. Because I wanted, by then, I really wanted to do something that would benefit society and the planet. I didn't want to just tear things down anymore. I had grown up to the point where just questioning was no longer satisfying. When you're young, you can question, but you don't know how to solve the problem. At Princeton, I was given some tools that I could use to actually attack a problem and maybe even offer a solution. And I thought that implementing renewable energy and getting us out from under the thumb of the Middle East and our, our addiction the United States addiction to gasoline and to oil would maybe offer a good alternative. The following year, though, Jimmy Carter's term ended. And when Ronald Reagan moved into the White House, the 32 solar panels that had been installed came off the roof, literally and proverbially. Reagan championed small government, and so funding for renewable energy research at the Department of Energy was gutted tax incentives for businesses that used alternative energy were eliminated, and cars started growing bigger as the U.S. recommitted to fossil fuels. For Francis Arnold, there were personal career implications. It was pretty clear to this young engineer that solar energy future was going to be a rocky road. And that was true for all renewable energy. So I said, well, let's go learn something new. 
And I showed up at Berkeley at the beginning of the DNA revolution. My timing was fantastic. And I just got so excited about the technological implications of being able to manipulate the code of life for the first time. It's what was happening. I think it's still difficult for a layperson like myself to understand how fuels could come down to enzymes. <laughs> but you already saw that potential. Well, this is a, an old idea. Uh, cars were run on wood. In the old days, they could burn wood, gas, gasify wood. Cars were run on ethanol. I mean, oil is a new phenomenon. That didn't become widely available until the 30s and 40s. So the original fuels were, a lot of them were bio-based. Uh, we lost that when it became so easy to pump oil out of the ground. But we all know that biology stores solar energy in all sorts of forms, and one of those forms is plants. So these ideas had been around for a long time that you could convert plants into fuels. I wanted to do that when I went to graduate school in the 1980s, but we were not ready for that then. And that's when I got caught up in this whole new revolution that we could manipulate the code of life, that we could cut and paste DNA. And here I was, a young graduate student, learning biochemistry and learning chemistry for the first time from the people who who started this revolution. So I looked at the biological world and said, that's what I want to engineer. Not nuclear power plants, not rocket ships, not airplanes. I thought maybe it would be fun to work on spaceships. I said, no, look at the biological world. Here is the most beautiful, intricate, functional, capable set of engineering things that have ever been devised. And it was all devised by the biological world, by evolution, not by human beings, not by human engineers. Frances Arnold wanted a piece of that. Could she find a way to direct the biological world's own process to solve some pressing human problems? In her earlier career as an engineer, she'd lacked the tools, but now there were new tools and she was eager to brandish them. Do you recall a moment when you realized, this is going to work? Well, there was an aha moment in the sense that it wasn't obvious how to do this. I had to think about it quite a bit. How do you create something that's never before existed in the biological world and do it on a time scale using evolution on a time scale of days or weeks, not eons, not millions of years, with one graduate student and not an army of graduate students. How do you do it so fast that you actually can get something done? And that's what took thought. And that's why my methods work, because I had this engineering, do the simplest possible thing. And the most efficient way to go about it, and somehow, I was able to lay that out and implement it and be the first ever to do that. And that's why I got the Nobel Prize. It probably would have been done later by somebody else, but I actually did it first. So when I saw our first experiments, when I saw that, first of all, you could 
convince a protein to adapt, right? You could train this protein to do something nature had never asked it to do before and do it quickly on the timescale weeks or months. That was the first thing that I, I said, well, it works. And then when I reverse engineered it, so we said, how did this happen? What changes in the DNA sequence gave rise to these properties? Are they obvious? So we sequenced the protein and figured out what mutations in its gene led to these properties. And that's when I said, aha, nobody will catch up with me because they're so subtle. Nobody can even explain these. So for example, it's you are you, I am I, what are the differences between us? And how does our genome explain why you are you and why I am I? Nobody can tell you that. Nobody can tell you that it's this that makes you think the way and love journalism the way that you do, or that it's this that makes me good at mathematics. It's the same with a protein. I could evolve this protein. I could see its new properties, but I couldn't explain why these mutations did that. So that's when I realized that those who would rationally design the same proteins wouldn't be doing it in my lifetime. That was 30 years ago. And they know. still can't do it. <laughs> How soon did you realize some of the practical ramifications? I know you talked about a fuel, but there have been many others. Tell us about that. The practical ramifications are enormous. Uh, this whole idea that we can compose new DNA empowered lots and lots of people to make new enzymes and other things. And they started making new enzymes all right away. People in industry looked at what I was doing and said, that makes total sense. Because I'm not going to wait around for the biochemist to tell me how this works. I can just use it. So what they do? They made laundry detergents. You go to your laundry detergent, you see enzymes. Those are all made by directed evolution. Because those enzymes, if you pull them from nature, they want to be coddled. But if you put them in a laundry machine, <laughs> they usually stop working. So companies had to make them more stable and more robust and able to go over all sorts of temperatures. But apart from that, you can use enzymes to make drugs, you can pharmaceuticals, you can use enzymes to replace toxic chemistry, you can use enzymes in personal care products, we use them to make uh, textiles, baking in bread. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that human beings use enzymes, and almost all of them are optimized by directed evolution. Dr. Arnold's primary work as a professor at Caltech is to do basic research and to educate students. She publishes scientific papers, and she leaves product development to companies most of the time. Over the past 30 years, she has been involved in a few startups created by her students. One of those she's involved in right now is called Provivi, and it's a great example of how her directed evolution is working in the world. This is a company that was formed by one of my PhD students, Pedro Coelho, and another former PhD student, Peter Meinhold, and they are going to revolutionize crop protection, agriculture. I would dearly love to replace pesticides. We, we are dumping 
billions of pounds of these toxic agents onto our planet in order to grow the crops that we need to feed a growing population. Resistance to pesticides is marching inexorably up from South America. And these, these crop pests that, that destroy crops are becoming resistant to these chemicals. So we put more out. Now, imagine this. You've got pests, insects, have to have sex to mate, right? And it's their caterpillars. So you have moths that go and eat corn. It's their caterpillars that eat corn. So if you can interfere with insect sex, you don't have caterpillars. And if you don't have caterpillars, you don't have damage to the crop. So how do insects find each other in a field? They emit little Chanel number no. five plumes, tiny, tiny bits of molecules that go out into the, into the air, and then that brings the male to find the female. So imagine you have a bottle of this Chanel number no. five, and you just spray it <laughs> around the field. You confuse the males, and they fly around, and they can't find her. They know she's there, but they can't find her. Then they don't mate, and then you don't have crop damage. Now, the Chanel number no. five is a very specific molecule invented by the insects. We know its chemical structure. And unfortunately, it's really expensive to make if you do it chemically. But we invented ways to use enzymes and biology and chemistry to make these things very inexpensively. So now, today, we have 75 people in Santa Monica who are working on implementing this in Indonesia, South America, Mexico, white corn in Mexico, vegetables and corn in South America, rice in Indonesia, so that you would be able to use this organic, non-toxic mode of pest control for agriculture. Isn't it hard to convince this agricultural industry that you're really onto something in this revolutionary way? No, it's not hard to convince them because they all see pesticide resistance. They see this as a looming wall. We will not be able to feed the planet unless we solve this problem. Uh, the maize crop in Africa has been completely destroyed in some areas by this fall armyworm that just comes and eats everything. And there's no way to treat these fields. In South America, it's, uh, it's devastating. So this... Uh, I think the, the industry is actually very eager for this to work. We've been able to recruit the top people from key companies into this little startup because they see this as a, as a major benefit. Jane Goodall made a video that's on our website saying this is the way we need to go. So tell us about winning the Nobel Prize. I do want to get into uh, some more of the ramifications of your research, but um, this happened quite recently. It did. Uh, where were you? What was that like? Well, um, I was sound asleep in a Dallas hotel room uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning, having just arrived to Dallas to give a talk at, at a school nearby. Uh, the telephone rang, and of course, I thought it was one of my sons with some sort of disaster. I've had enough of those that I keep my telephone on at night. And it was this sweet voice from Stockholm saying that, uh, could I hold on for the Nobel Prize Committee? And the Secretary General got on and told me I had 
been given, I was going to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. And I just hit the ceiling. <laughs> I said, holy <laughs> you know, I was very excited. I was um, stunned. And so I had to put the telephone down. They, they call you back in half an hour for a press conference. And they tell you you can't call anybody. So I couldn't call home. I couldn't do anything. And so I said, coffee, shower, coffee, shower. <laughs> I took the shower first because I knew it was going to be a very long day. And then I got a cup of coffee, had the press conference, and then I tried to call home. I tried to call my older son who works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And of course, he doesn't pick up the phone. And I tried to call home where my younger son was. And of course, he doesn't pick up the phone. So I'm walking around the hotel room, you know, just I couldn't reach anybody. And I was very excited. And in the Nobel Prize Committee, they said, oh, you sound so relaxed. I'm a good faker, I guess. <laughs> and I said, oh, my goodness, I'm climbing the walls trying to pretend to sound relaxed. But I was really very excited. Could that 15-year-old who left home uh, went into pizza parlors to work, and taxi cabs, and jazz clubs, could she have imagined such a thing? I didn't imagine the future. That's, I keep, people ask me that question. Um, I just imagined the near future, right? How am I going to get through today and tomorrow? Um, maybe next year. I think it's important to realize, though, that most scientists, we don't do science for prizes, right? I went into science to become a researcher and I did it at age 30, uh, because I finally found something that I enjoy to do every day. Most scientists work for the joy of inventing and discovering that we do every day. And I, that's, that's why I feel so lucky that I have this opportunity to work with young people, to invent things, to do things that I hope will help the planet. And if a prize comes along, that's nice too. But that's just icing on the cake. You mentioned your children. You have had uh, so many challenges, so many personal tragedies, and yet you have persevered and retained that stubborn <laughs> uh, <laughs> ambition and, and vision. How, how is that possible? What alternative do you have? As a mother, I had children who looked to me when the most terrifying things were happening, when their father died. You could fall apart, but if you fall apart, what happens to everybody else? Francis Arnold's first husband's death from cancer, when he was in his 50s, was the first in a series of tragedies. A few years later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And six years after that, her second husband died by suicide. Then, more recently, in 2016, one of her sons died in an accident. So yes, her accomplishments and her equanimity seem all the more remarkable for what she has been through. Um, none of us is entitled to a challenge-free life. And young people come to me and ask for advice on you know, how to deal with Know, what they see as their challenges and, and, and try to avoid it. 
You can't avoid challenges. You can only overcome them. You don't have control. Loved ones will die. You will not get the job that you really want. You will be laid off. Someone's going to criticize you. It's going to happen. How you respond to it really dictates whether you will be happy or not. Although it doesn't fall into the same category of hardship, let's not overlook the many years of isolation Frances Arnold experienced as a woman in a field overwhelmingly dominated by men, or the years she spent raising her children alone while laboring in her lab to change the world. She was only the fifth woman to ever win a Nobel Prize in chemistry, and only the second since 1964. She didn't have many, if any, women mentors when she was entering her field. No, there weren't any. But she is grateful for the women who carved paths for her, including Marie Curie, the very first woman scientist to win a Nobel in physics and chemistry, mind you, a hundred plus years ago. I wish I had met her. I'm sure she was quite the thing. (laughs) I saw her letter when I went to the Nobel Museum where they, I think for her second prize, the committee had asked her actually not to come because she was living with a man who was not her husband. Maybe her husband had died. I don't remember exactly the thing. And she said, she wrote back and she said, I thought that this prize was for my science and not necessarily my living arrangements. (laughs) So she came and collected her prize. I may be, I'm paraphrasing it, but I think she had quite the backbone. A noted professor who's also been honored by the Academy of Achievement, uh, Professor Robert Langer, said that it is not an exaggeration that you have been able to achieve in perhaps a minute or an hour what otherwise might have taken a billion years, directed evolution. I think it's even more fun that we can achieve in a short period of time what never would appear, right? I don't want to recapitulate what would happen naturally. I want to take biology where it would never have gone because I want to put it in service of helping humans live on this planet without destroying everything else. And so I want to use biology to do something in support of that, of that goal. And biology wouldn't do it without a little bit of convincing. <laughs> a little kick in the pants? Yeah, she would wipe us off the planet. She's tried. <laughs> she might succeed. I've read uh, that you have sometimes referred to the music of biology, and earlier you were talking about composing. Um, there's almost something artsy in this. Well, it is artsy. Uh, biology just does plays beautiful music. You look at the code of life, to me, that's like a Beethoven symphony. It's something I could not compose. It's something intricate. It's it's stunningly beautiful. I can't compose it, but there's there's this machine, this evolution algorithm. You just turn the crank, make random changes, and select for this function. And out comes all this wonderful diversity. Out comes all the life that you see around you. 
that has come out of this machine of natural evolution. So I want to make a machine like that for artificial evolution. And that's what we've been able to do. So now I can decide what I want my symphony to do. How does it make you feel? How does it give you something that you did not have before? And I can turn the crank and create that. What do you hope will come of that? The realization that we can do almost all of our chemistry with clean biological systems. That you can't, you can no longer tell me, oh, biology can't do this. Biology can't make these compounds, so don't even bother me with a biological solution. Oh, now I'll show them. Well, look, we can do it, and we can do it better than you can. <laughs> and a cleaner world, that's, that's what I want to see. And I want us to think in a different way about how we do chemistry, how we teach chemistry, how we think about making these things that we use in our daily lives. We can't live on electrons. We need stuff. And we need a lot of stuff. And we need to recycle that stuff. So we need to have new ways to think about how to do that. Finally, I just wanted you to maybe send a message about what first thrilled you about science and engineering. If you remember back to your initial uh, excitement about it. I am a builder. Um, I see it in my sons. I see it in myself. I love to build things. And if it's molecules, that's called chemistry. If it's machines, it's called machining. But I love to create something that never existed before and that can also serve a purpose. I'm not a composer. I love music that I can't compose. I'm not a poet. I love poetry. I'm not good at composing words. Uh, but I can compose molecules. <laughs> That's Nobel Prize winner Dr. Francis Arnold, composer of the biological world and professor of chemical engineering at Caltech. She's still hard at work defining what a new future for the planet will look like, but she's also hoping next year she might be able to get back around to playing the guitar. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. You can find out more about Dr. Arnold and about a lot of other Nobel Prize winners who are members of the Academy at achievement.org. What It Takes is generously funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you as always for listening.